Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Truth in Christ Radio, a Bible teaching radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Rochester with Senior Pastor Rob Kellogg. So if we look at verses 5 through 16, the Lord is saying that just as the old apostates receive judgment, so will the new ones. And anyone that comes after them will be judged in like manner. And the thing we have to remember is that God does not show partiality. He's not, he doesn't treat one group one way and another group the one, another way. God is consistent. He judges sin. And even as a believer, when we sin, he chastens us to, to instruct us. Welcome, everyone, to Truth in Christ Radio for today. The warning through Jude is clear. The people of Israel started out from Egypt well enough. They had many blessings from God along the way, but they did not endure to the end because they did not believe God's promises and power and protection. Jude says the certain men might have started out well, but so did the children of Israel, and God afterward destroyed those who did not believe. It also warns us that we also must follow Jesus to the end and never be among those who do not believe. The final test of our Christianity is endurance. Some start the race but never finish it. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he continues in the book of Jude. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Jude. It's actually a letter. It's not really a book, but it's one of the books of the Bible. But it's a letter, an epistle. I like that. The last couple of weeks, we really kind of spent a lot of time in the first four verses, and we, we talked about you know just establishing the author of this because uh, it is significant that it was Jesus' half-brother that wrote this letter. In the last couple of weeks, we talked about contending for the faith and how necessary that is. It was necessary for them at the time that this letter was written to the church in general, but even for us today, this is very applicable because we need to, more than ever, to contend for the faith. We need to strive. We need to struggle. Uh, we, need to, we need to get our feet firmly planted and, and dig in our heels because there's a lot of things trying to sway us, a lot of cultural things that are trying to sway us and get us off the mark. And we need to be straight as an arrow. We need to be following Jesus. We don't follow a man. We don't follow a movement. We don't follow anything. We follow Jesus, right? That's, what, that's who we follow. We don't follow Calvary Chapel even. We follow Jesus Christ, and we love his word, amen? And so that's why we are here. And so we looked at contending for the faith. And also the, uh, the exhortation or the warning, actually, that certain men have crept in unnoticed and are delivering doctrines um, and, and, and lewdness. And these are men that don't even know the Lord at all. These aren't just wayward believers or uh, backslidden believers. These are men whose intention is to destroy the faith of some. 
and to deny Jesus Christ and to deny his word. That was their intention, and they are all around us today. And many of them are on television. Charlatans. And this is never easy to say, because I hope I'm never one of them. I hope I'm never one of them. My desire is to stay true to the word of God and to love Jesus Christ and to worship him alone. And I know that's your desire. So we looked at verses 1 through 4, but I would like to uh, get into uh, 5. And and if the Lord allows us to to finish this chapter today, I don't know if it's going to be possible, but we'll give it a shot. But we'll certainly get through a good chunk of it. So let's look at, um, let's pick up in verse 3, but we're really going to start in verse 5. So in verse 3 of this, uh, Jude says, Beloved, and again, when he says beloved, he's saying dear friends. That's kind of the, the, the salutation. He, he's talking to people that he knows. And so he says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting to contend earnestly for the faith, which was, notice, once for all delivered to the saints. You might want to underline that if you haven't already. And why? Why is it necessary for us to contend earnestly for the faith? The answer is verse 4. Because certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we go on. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah, notice he's drawing a comparison here. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in similar manner to these, having given giving themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. Boy, that's an interesting phrase. Kind of, sounds kind of spooky. Something you want to stay away from is strange flesh. Amen? <laughs> so, And they're set forth as an example, he tells us, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And likewise, also, these dreamers, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, they speak evil of dignitaries. And yet, Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but rather said, The Lord rebuke you. But these, they speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them! For they have gone in the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. And that's, that may be all we get today. We'll see. But uh, let's look at this. Let's go back in verse 5 here. This is an interesting thing. Now, there's some interesting things that we're going to be talking about today, and you may not agree with them, and that's okay. And they're a little bit dark I'll be honest with you, because these are kind of some, some dark things. And in fact, this whole letter is full of warning, and it's full of exhortation, but warning about what's coming and um, the, the eternal consequences of people like this. And he gives us examples in the Old Testament, and even things yet future, of their doom And so this is not one of those necessarily feel-good messages. I can't wait to get to the Gospels, um, because after we get through this, we're going to get right into Revelation. That's going to get interesting, too. But um, So if we look at verses 5 through 16, 
the Lord is saying that just as the old apostates received judgment, so will the new ones. And anyone that comes after them will be judged in like manner. And the thing we have to remember is that God does not show partiality. He's not, he doesn't treat one group one way and another group the one, another way. God is consistent. He judges sin. And even as a believer, when we sin, he chastens us to, to instruct us. That's the difference between being in Christ and outside of Christ. When you're in Christ, God chastens you with the intention of giving you instruction to get you back on the path again. If you're an unbeliever and you continue in your unbelief until you take your last breath and you are judged, you are judged for that sin or those sins that you've committed. And even during your life, the consequences of the sins that you've made, there are always consequences. That's why we look around us and we see so many people's lives such a wreck because they've never bowed their knee to Christ. They've never submitted themselves to the Word of God. They have no authority. In fact, they despise authority. And as a result, their lives are a complete train wreck. And it's just one train wreck after another. Have you known people like that outside of Christ? Even sometimes in Christ you find people like that. But especially outside of Christ, it's just one calamity after another. And a lot of it they brought on themselves because of the choices that they've made. And see, God is no partial. He's not partial. He does, he, he's hard on all of us because he knows what's best for us. I don't know what's best for me. Certainly before I knew, came to Christ, I didn't know what was good for me. I thought I knew best. But now I know him. And I know that he is the example. He is the standard. In fact, in Hebrews, uh, speaking of believers, um, the author says this, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. And he does that because he loves us. A father may uh, discipline us for a season, but God does it for our good. And he knows what to do, and he knows the length, and he knows how severe it needs to be. And every one of us is individual. It's not the same for you, and it's not the same for you. It's just God's custom-made sort of thing that he does. And he knows you may be able to get away with that much of that particular sin, and another person only gets away with that much, that much of it before, they get, um, before the Lord really starts bringing uh, chastening upon them. We don't always understand that. We don't think it's fair, and it really isn't. But God is just. He's not always fair in the, in the sight of the world. But in Romans, it says that, um, that God will render each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, this is what they get. They get indignation and they get wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why? Verse 11, it says in Romans 2, verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. He's not partial. So we get into verse 5 and he says, but I want to remind you though once you knew this, that the Lord having saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Notice that out of all the people... Um, all the children of Israel who fled Egypt, only Joshua and Caleb and the younger generation were the ones who made it into the promised land. The rest of them died. Aaron and, and Moses himself and that older generation, they all died in the wilderness. And why was it? Hebrews tells us. It says because of their unbelief. Because of their unbelief. 
And that's really what Jude is saying here. He's saying these apostates, these men or women who are um, giving themselves over to lewdness and denying the only Lord God and Jesus Christ, he says, I want you to remind you of something, that God is not partial. And just as he judged those who did not believe in God's own people, he judged them in the wilderness. Thousands of them had died in the wilderness. He says, so too for these. God is the same. And he goes on and he says, the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now this is a really interesting can of worms, isn't it? It's funny to me, it's, it's not funny, it's just interesting, how Jude just nonchalantly just pulls this verse out, sticks it in there, and just keeps going. And you're like, oh, wait a minute. What is this all about? And you've got to understand something, that this idea that I'm going to share with you today, I believe was very common to them. And it's uh, common because he didn't really see the need to elaborate on it, which means that his audience probably understood what he was talking about. He probably, they probably understood what he was talking about. So let's just get into this a little bit, okay? Because this is one of those crazy uh, verses of Scripture, and uh, we need to take a look at it. If you would, turn to Second Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 4 through 6 here. But notice what I just read. Now, Jude is saying, just like these, just like these Old Testament and even these angels... And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, they didn't keep their estate, they didn't keep their abode, the place where they were dwelling. They, did, they were supposed to remain in heaven. They were supposed to remain there and, and stay in that form. But notice, but they left their own abode. And notice it says that God has reserved them in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. The great day is still in front of us, isn't it, in time? Actually, from your perspective, I'm pointing backwards, but... And on the timeline here, it's still yet in the future for even us. But notice what it says in Second Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. He says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward will live ungodly. Notice that this unlawful, there's something really interesting about this, there was an unlawful and wicked crossing of the boundaries. This is a real spooky verse, but we're going to get into it. Because they left their first abode. May have, them doing this may have been what produced the giants in the time before and after the flood. The Nephilim, I'm referring to specifically. These fallen ones. This may have been what happened. A race of people that God had pronounced judgment upon. And we know them as the Nephilim, the Rephaim. We know them as the Anakim, the Emim, the Zamzumim. We see them before the flood. In fact, they are one of the reasons why God brought the flood. Because of the wickedness of man and because of this race of people, God saw that it was wicked. It was really, really wicked. And there's something really interesting about this because we're going to go to Genesis. You might as well turn there uh, because something happened before the flood and it also occurred again after the flood. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, it says, Now it came to pass. Now what, what chapter is after Genesis 6? What chapter? Chapter 7. What happens in Genesis chapter 7? 
the flood. Okay, so now Moses is telling us, God is telling us, it says, It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God, I want you to underline that, sons of God, you're going to see it. It only happens four times. This phrase only happens actually uh, five times in the Old Testament. Five times, and we're going to look at at least four of those today. Notice that the sons of God, they saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took them wives for themselves, all whom they chose. And notice, now let me ask you a question. This is just logic. God placed man and woman on the earth to procreate. That's a very common thing. He said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And it would appear that something is a miss here because of God pronouncing judgment upon this certain arrangement. Look at it. It's very clear. And the Lord said, as a result of this, the sons of God with the daughters of men, he says, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he indeed is flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. And it says there were giants. That word giants is Nephilim in the Hebrew. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward. After what? After the flood, and he's going to share that with us in the very next chapter. But even after that, when the sons of God, underline that again, the sons of God, even after the flood, they came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, and these were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So this wicked activity had to be more than just a normal physical relationship between a woman and a man. Otherwise, God wouldn't have pronounced such warning and and a decisive blow to it. Does that make sense? I don't know, does it? It's okay if it doesn't, but to me it does. Because he he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. But there's something about these sons of God. Sons of God and the daughters of men. There's some unholy union happening here. In fact, turn with me now to Job chapter 1. So now we've seen two of the instances in the Old Testament where the sons of God comes about. And my point in doing this is to prove something to you. Because it's good for us to read the Bible and read it with your mind. You don't have to check out your brain when you read the Bible. Read it and think about it. And I think you'll agree with me. What I'm going to share with you today makes sense. And by the way, I'm not the only one who feels this way. So it's, I'm, not, I'm not trying to teach you something that's weird and aberrant, okay? But notice what it says in Job chapter 1 and verse 6. Now, every time we hear the, see the word sons of God, that phrase, I want you to underline it. So here it is. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro throughout the earth and walking back and forth on it. And then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him in all the earth, a a blameless and an upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. But notice that phrase, sons sons of God. Let me ask you a question. Just based on what we've read so far, does the word, the phrase sons of God, does that sound like a, a, a people like you and I? I don't stand in the presence of God. I mean, right now, I mean, not in the flesh, right? In order to stand in the presence of God, as this is describing to me, and to have Satan present, is God a spirit? He is. The Bible says so. God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Is the devil, is he a spirit? He is. So these sons of God are in the company of God and Satan. Now turn with me to Job chapter 2. Just go over one chapter and look in verse 1. And it says, again... Again, 
<laughs> there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And he says the exact same thing, a little bit variant. But the idea is, these are angels. These sons of God, Ben Elohim, which means sons of God, these are angels, and specifically fallen angels. These are demons. These aren't men like you and I would think of them. Because in order to be in the presence of God, you've got to be in the same dimension. You've got to be in the same physical thing. I mean, has anybody, nobody, the Bible says that no one has seen God and lived in, his, in, in spirit, right? For us to stand before God as spirit, we would vanish in his glory. And then finally, in Job 38, you don't have to go there. Let me just read this to you, but it's in verse 7, but I'm going to read verse 4. It says, finally God is opening up to Job. He says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? And to what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? And here's the verse. Then the morning stars sing together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. These are angels. These are not men. Does that make sense? Is my, is my brain soft? Or is, does that make sense? These are angels. All five references in the Old Testament speak of angelic beings, not men's souls. The Bible, in, the, in the New Testament, the phrase sons of God appears, but it's only speaking of believers. But in the Old Testament, there's only five of them. And for the ones that we read just now, would you agree with me that the connotation of those four don't sound very good? The Genesis, the sons of God going in and, and having relationships with, with women and developing this race of giants that were wicked, and then Job, you know, these sons of God standing before God and the devil, presenting themselves before the Lord in spirit, their spirits, their, their demonic spirits. And these sons of God are demonic spirits that Jesus spoke of. You remember when we are in First Peter chapter 3, we looked at this, and we'll get into that briefly. But what was the purpose of the demons or the Nephilim or the fallen ones to do this? Why did they leave their first estate as Jude is telling us? What was the point, really, for them to come down and to physically uh, make themselves uh, physical and visible and to have relations with women and then those offspring become uh, something genetically different than a normal union between a husband and wife? Wouldn't you agree that there's something kind of weird about this? These race of giants, the, the Bible is filled with this kind of stuff. We don't have time to go there. But these men of great stature, and they were all bent on evil. And it all goes back to the sin of these fallen angels leaving their first estate and God allowing it for some reason. And it happened before the flood, and God brought the flood and wiped everybody out. And guess who only inherited the earth after the flood? Noah and his wife and his three sons and their three his, their three wives, eight people. But yet the Bible says later on in Deuteronomy 13, verse 31, it says that the same problem started happening again. After God had judged the earth and they started to replenish the earth from Shem, Ham, and Japheth, all of a sudden we have the same problem where these fallen angels are coming down and they're having intimacy, intercourse with women, giving birth to, again, the Nephilim. I believe that's what happened. And it makes sense to me. And another reason they did this is to pollute the bloodline. All the scriptures, going back even to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, talks about 
The seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. The seed of the woman is Jesus Christ. Who is the serpent? Satan. And not only that, but you get into... I'm sorry, that's all the time we have for today. But please join us next time as Pastor Rob continues our study in the book of Jude. Calvary Chapel of Rochester is located at 2503 Browncroft Boulevard, Rochester, New York, 14625. You can reach us at our church office between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. Monday through Friday at area code 585-586-3140. If you would like to have an audio CD of today's message mailed to you in its unedited form, simply mention today's date when contacting our church office. You can also contact us via the web by logging on to www.calvaryrochester.com. There you will be able to access a number of useful things, such as information concerning our beliefs, our ministries, contact information, our location, service times, and much more. You can also download or listen to the radio and sanctuary messages free of charge from the teachings link at the top of the page. To listen to Calvary Chapel of Rochester Sanctuary messages or Truth in Christ Radio on your mobile device, just subscribe to both through Google Play and Apple Podcasts. You may also join us on Sundays and Thursdays through live streaming of our services and Bible studies. Just click on the online services link. We're so glad that you could join us today. And if there is any way that we can bless you in your walk with Jesus Christ, please don't hesitate to call our church office. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for this cause, I have come into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. May God bless you in abundance today as you walk with him. And until next time, this has been Truth in Christ.